All right, good morning and welcome again. Uh, we're glad you're here as we uh, kick off our Christmas season here at CBC. And along with that, we are beginning a new Christmas series called Word Made Flesh. And for the next four weeks, we're going to do really kind of a deep dive into one of the most profound descriptions of the birth of Christ in all of Scripture found in John 1.14. And it's really not an exaggeration to say that John 1.14 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Uh, author Andrew Wilson says it's perhaps the most outrageous sentence in history. And it reads, John 1.14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you know, I imagine when, you know, you think about Christmas, you think about the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus, there are probably a lot of, you know, pretty familiar images and moments that come to mind. Maybe you think of uh, the virgin birth or, you know, Mary and Joseph in that lowly manger. You might think of the choir of angels singing amongst the shepherds and the flocks of sheep or, you know, the magi coming uh, to bring their gifts to Jesus. If you're a little bit twisted, maybe the first thing you think of is King Herod and killing babies. I hope that's not the first thing you think of, but maybe it's just what comes to mind. But I'm almost positive that no one thinks about John 1.14 when they think about the Christmas story. I doubt this is anyone's favorite Christmas verse. I don't think there are any Christmas carols about John 1. But... In spite of all of that, I, I really think that this verse is as Christmassy as they come. Not in a traditional nativity scene kind of way, but I think this verse, maybe more than any other verse in Scripture, captures how amazing Jesus' birth really was. How miraculous, how wondrous, how absolutely mind-boggling it is that this baby was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And ultimately, I think what we want during this time of year, more than anything else, more than, you know, all the traditions and all the fun stuff that we do that's good, but what we want more than anything is to have a greater appreciation of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And I think that we will find that in John 1.14, and, and I'm excited for our series. Uh, so this morning, what I want to do is, as we just kind of begin to dip our toes into this verse, we have four weeks for one verse, four weeks to unpack 33 words, so we're going to take our time. And this morning, we're really just going to kind of explore the context of this verse. What's going on in John chapter 1 as a whole? Because keep in mind, right, this is the beginning of the Apostle John's account of the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's likely that by this point, by the time John writes his gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written and dispersed and spread throughout the, the early church. People are kind of familiar with these stories about Jesus, about his life, and especially his birth. And so you get the sense that the apostle John, who, who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who spent years with him, following him, getting to know him, that with these three Gospels already written, that John thinks he has something important to say, something unique to say about Jesus. And as we turn to the opening chapter of John 1, this introduction to Jesus, we see how unique his perspective is. 
So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 1, and we'll really be spending our time today in, in the first five verses of this chapter. And this all kind of sets us up, this kind of leads us into what John is going to talk about in verse 14, which we'll really begin to tackle next week. But in verse 1, he writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had kind of a funny conversation with uh, my best friend Josh. And uh, him and I play fantasy football together. So during this time of year, about 80% of our text messages are about football players, stats, teams, random stuff like that. But he was telling me as we were talking about football that he uh, recently discovered something that surprised him. And he said, you know, for years he had been confused by the name of this particular football coach. And this coach is an offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs. And whenever Josh would hear uh, people talk about him on, on sports radio or on podcasts, he thought it was weird that everyone called him by this particular nickname, Eric the Enemy. Like on one hand, that's a cool nickname. You know, Eric the Enemy it makes him sound kind of rugged and tough, but Josh couldn't help but wonder, why do they call him that? What could that possibly mean, Eric the Enemy? And just as important, why is it that Everyone always calls him this. Every commentator, every podcaster, Bill Simmons, Colin Cowherd, they all always call him Eric the Enemy. Well, finally last week he was reading an article about the Chiefs, and he realized that Eric the Enemy is not a nickname. His name is Eric the Enemy. Seems like there's maybe like three big football fans in this room who saw that coming. But I, anyway, he told me this. I made fun of him. I thought it was pretty hilarious. But this is probably the dumbest possible way to make a simple but important point that I think we all recognize, that we expect nicknames to have meaning. Right? If someone is given a, a new name, it makes sense that there would be some real significance to that name. And obviously, Jesus has a lot of names, a lot of nicknames that make perfect sense. And we talk about a lot of these during Christmas time. Messiah, Emmanuel, Savior, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There are so many treasured names that we have for Jesus. But I think one of the names that sometimes puzzles us is this one that we see in John 1, the Word. Now, you might never have given any thought to this, but this is one of the names that we use for Jesus. Jesus is the Word. Uh, you think about one of our, our favorite worship songs here at CBC, What a Beautiful Name. And again, you might not have noticed this, but the opening line of this song is singing to Jesus, you were the Word at the beginning. And again, we don't use this one a lot, and, and we might not notice it, but for those of you who have thought about it, maybe you've been a little bit confused by that and wondered, why do we call Jesus that? What does it mean? And more importantly, as John opens up his story about Jesus, as he says, hey, I'm going to tell you guys something unique about who Jesus is, why is this the first thing we see? 
the first thing that John tells us about Jesus is right here, that he is the Word. And so that's really kind of what we want to do this morning, is, is address that question and talk about what it means, why John uses this language, and what it tells us about who Jesus is and what his birth is all about. And so we're just going to kind of walk through these five verses in John 1 uh, in a little bit more depth uh, to see what John is talking about here. So let's go back to verse 1 here and really dive in. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first thing John wants to tell us about the Word is that the Word is the eternal Son of God. So right from the start, John wants to tell us that Jesus is not a created being. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born in this manger in Bethlehem. And you can see how this would be an easy mistake to make. Or you imagine that in the early church, as this news of Jesus began to spread, this amazing man, this teacher, and people would hear these stories about this baby being born in a manger, and you can imagine thinking about a baby and, and having a very human experience, right? So you think about a baby, what do you think about? You think about crying and, and eating and pooping and sleeping. And I mean, I guess that's really it. That's what babies do. They cry and they eat, they poop and sleep. And so that's very human. And Jesus' humanity, Jesus being a real person is important. He had a real physical body and real human experiences. But at the same time, we don't want to make the mistake of giving him a truly normal human identity. We don't want to make his identity mundane or think that he's just another baby. And so John begins here because he wants us to see the uniqueness of Jesus. How unique he is in the most extreme possible way by saying that this Jesus, this word of God, who was born in this manger, he's actually existed eternally with the Father. Notice how John chooses his words so carefully here. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And let's be clear, John isn't talking about the beginning of Jesus' life. We, we know this is biblical language. In the beginning points us to what? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning when God created everything. And John says at that moment when the entire universe was created, when everything that has been made came into existence, the word was. The word already existed. The word was there with the Father, in relationship with the Father. And then in case there's any mistake about what he might be saying, he finishes with this, that the word was God. So Jesus, the Word, is not like a God. He's not a man who's given some kind of special divine power. He is God himself. Now, as a starting point, I, I, I imagine this isn't mind-blowing for us. At least not mind-blowing in the sense that it might have been for John's readers. Uh, we have a, a lot of background, a lot of kind of fully formed doctrines about Jesus as the Son of God, about the Trinity, and so Jesus as, as God, Jesus as deity, is really kind of built into the way we talk about him. Right? You can go into any Sunday school class next door, and they're talking about Jesus being God. But at the same time, we can't miss the significance of this point. 
Because at the end of the day, what you really think about Jesus matters a lot. And it's really easy to know this truth without really believing it. It's really easy to affirm that, yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man without living like that's actually the case. And the degree to which you accept that Jesus of Nazareth was the eternal Son of God is really important. And this is the point John is developing here. What does it practically mean that Jesus is the Word, that he has eternally existed with God and as God? Well, let's continue on in our passage. Verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The second thing we see about Jesus here as the Word is that the Word is the creator and sustainer of all existence. Now, just really quickly, if there are any little kids out there, I don't think so, but if there are any kids watching at home, do the earmuffs thing. I don't want you to hear this. This is a horrible thing I'm about to say. But this past week, we uh, had a family discussion to uh, officially talk about the truth of Santa Claus. And, you know, my kids are nine and seven, so they've, they've kind of known for a couple years, but we've just kind of let it linger just because it's fun. And, and I don't know, we didn't want to like really, really officially say anything. But this year, it's like, okay, they're getting old. We need to talk about it. So we sat them down and we're like, hey, you guys, you guys know, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we kind of know. But it ended up being kind of a fun discussion because what ended up happening was we got to talk about uh, how mom and dad were behind so many of these memorable experiences in their life. And so they had all these questions, right? Like, so which one of you buys the presents? And, and which one of you wraps the present? Who, who eats the cookies and drinks the beer that we set out for Santa Claus? <laughs> and I said, mom does. <laughs> but it was fun for them to get a glimpse behind the scenes uh, of an important part of their life. Okay, kids, you can, you can start listening again. Here in verse 2, John takes us behind the scenes of human history to some of the most important moments in our existence. And he tells us that this whole creation story, Genesis 1, God creating everything, he says, guess who's behind that? The Word, Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity. When God made the universe, all things out of nothing. It was Jesus at work. And here what we see is John beginning to develop his point. This is where this word language really begins to take on some significance. See, throughout the Old Testament, when our, the biblical authors would talk about God's word, it was, it was kind of a technical term. And it's associated with his power and his activity. So whenever God would act in history, or when God would do these amazing things, what we would see is that he would speak, and things would happen. Right? So think about the creation story. How does God create? God says with his word, let there be light. And there's light. God speaks. He says, you know, let there be the sun and the stars and, and, and the water and life and all this. And there is sun and sky and water and life. 
God's word in the Old Testament is his creative power. It's effective. When, when God speaks, things happen. And we see this in other ways in the Old Testament as well, not just in creation, but in God's relationship with his people. When God's word comes to people, again, things happen. We see God healing and empowering, bringing knowledge and truth through his word. And so when people read the Hebrew scriptures and they thought about the word of God, they thought of his power and action. And what John is doing here in, verse, in chapter 1 is he's, he's introducing a brand new thought into scripture. And what he's telling us is that the word of God is not simply a way of describing God's speech. He's saying that the word is actually a person. That when God speaks, things happen because his word goes out, this personal word, and brings his power, brings his life, brings his order and structure. So when God says, let there be light, this is personal word moves into the world and, and creates light. When God says, let there be the sun and the stars and the moon, this word goes out and, and forms these sources of light and places them exactly where they're supposed to go. He's saying that when the word of the Lord came in power to Israel, that there was a, a personal aspect to them, someone going out into the world to bring empowerment and healing and truth. And he's saying that this person, this word of God, is Jesus himself. That this pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has been working and creating and sustaining throughout all of history. Jesus doesn't begin in a manger. Jesus has been working throughout all of time. And you think about what a radical statement this is for early Christians who come from a Jewish background, who have this idea of the word of God as this kind of power and truth. And now John says that's Jesus. Now, if that's not a big enough idea, John is also speaking into the pagan culture of this time. In the Greek world, the word, term for word was logos. And Lagos is kind of this vague idea. It's hard to really pin down exactly how people thought of it. But the basic idea is that it was a way of thinking about reason and rationality. That somehow Lagos was this kind of ordering principle in the world. It brought stability to the world. It, brought, it kind of made things make sense. One author describes the Lagos as the soul of the universe. And so it's almost this thing that people believe was the source of all knowledge and wisdom. It's why the world makes sense. And so not only is John addressing this Jewish concept of the word of God, he's also addressing this Greek understanding, this concept of the logos. And he's acknowledging something that not just Jews would see, but that all people could see, that there is something that holds all of existence together. We all have this sense that there's some truth, there's some meaning to life. We feel that, that creation, it's not just physical substance, that there's something behind it. There's some greater truth or wisdom that we're all looking for. 
And he's saying it's not a philosophical principle, it's not some secret truth, it's not some special way of living, it's simply Jesus. Jesus is this Logos. And this way of thinking about life is important. Because Jesus as the Word, Jesus as the Logos, reminds us that through Jesus, God is active in his creation. Through Jesus, God has been bringing life and truth and beauty into the world from the very beginning. Through Jesus, God is holding all of existence, all of life together. And this is really what John is working towards in these opening verses, the goodness of the Word and his creative power. That's what we see in verse 4. Let's continue reading. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the last point from this, uh, these verses is simple. The word brings light and life. Now, I know there's a lot going on here, but let's just kind of track the train of thought. John says that Jesus is this word, this logos, who has existed forever. And he brings power and order and structure to the universe. And what he says here, what he finishes the idea with, is that the only real life, the only real light that we could find, of course it has to come from this creative, powerful word of God. There's only one source of light. And, you know, if you think about it, this is true in a literal sense, based on what John is telling us, right? Jesus created the, the sun and the stars. He created the idea of physical light. But it's true in a larger sense as well. John acknowledges that there is still darkness. There's still sin. There's still struggle. There's still brokenness. There's still hardship. And what he's saying is that the only real light in any of that darkness, the only way out of any of that darkness that we see and experience is the word. Now, I know that's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of big, heavy theology here, especially for a Christmas series. Uh, and we're going to unpack that more in the weeks to come. But there's a very important, very practical truth within this passage. If you remember, I said a few minutes ago that how we think about Jesus matters. And what we see is that if we understand who Jesus really is, if we not only see it, but if we believe it, then we cannot avoid the fact that Jesus has a level of authority that is truly unmatched. Jesus has a claim on your life, on your worship, your obedience, and your trust. See, when you think about what, what the author John is doing here, is, is he's setting us up for all the things that Jesus is going to do and say. He's setting us up for this hard, challenging teaching of the kingdom, the radical cost of following Jesus. And so before we get to any of that, John wants us to have a firm grasp on who it is that's going to make these claims, who it is that's going to ask so much of us, who it is that's going to challenge us to view life in a completely different way. One of the mistakes that we have to be so careful of is making Jesus small. At all times, we have to be careful, I think especially during Christmas time. 
We can't get so lost in his humanity that he becomes just another guy, just another teacher, just another leader, just another king. And one of the challenges that John was facing and a challenge that we face is all the different voices that make a claim on our life, on our obedience, on our worship and our trust. See, there are so many different things that claim to be this kind of logos principle that say this is what holds life together. This is what gives life meaning. This is what kind of undergirds everything that you see. Maybe it's knowledge, something like science and rationality. There's a whole strain of thought that says this is how life works. This is the principle behind everything. This is how you can have security and certainty. There are others who will say it's morality and good works, that this is what life is about. Maybe it's achievement and work and success, and, and we hear those voices that say, this is what your purpose should be. Healthy relationships, romance, raising good kids, having fun, being true to yourself. And behind every one of these values is a voice. Maybe it's a literal person in your life who says, this is how life makes sense. This is the real truth. Put another way, this is the way out of darkness. And so when John starts his gospel this way, he's saying, there is only one voice that has the right to say, this is the way out. There's only one voice that brings real life and real light. And you think about all the evidence that John is giving us so that we can trust, so that we can look to Jesus and say, this guy's legit. Right? He says Jesus was there when the world was created. And actually, in fact, he created it all. So Jesus understands the inner workings of the physical world. He understands the inner workings of the human heart and the human mind. He ordered and structured the stars in the sky and measured everything out so that life could exist. He created your brain and the chemicals within your brain, and he knows how you think and how you feel and how you make decisions. Because ultimately, he brought you into this world. He brought life out of the dust and poured breath into each one of us. And this is the ultimate trump card. No other source of knowledge, no other source of truth can claim to have this kind of authority. And so if you believe the Bible is true, and if you believe that Jesus actually is, who he says he is, then we have no choice but to treat him with a kind of reverence and humility. And we have to acknowledge that, that, that Jesus knows best, that Jesus understands us and understands the world in a way that we, we never could. You know, I remember the moment in my life when I really started listening to my mom. Now, I was a good kid, so I obeyed. I, I did what she said all the way growing up, and you know, I, I listened. But I started really listening when I was in college. I started to really choose to respect and take heed of her wisdom uh, during my kind of first couple months at UCLA. And when I got to UCLA, 
I don't know, I was a mess. So my, my, really my number one priority, more than anything else, was just to, to try to be cool. I just wanted to be cool. I wanted to, to fit in. I wanted to have a place in kind of this, this huge world of, of UCLA. And so kind of on a whim, the, the guys on my floor all rushed this fraternity. So I was like, all right, I'll rush with you guys. And it was a cool fraternity. And I got in, and I was really excited. And I went to talk to my mom about it. And she just kind of sat me down and, and said, you know, I don't think that's a good idea for you. And we had a lot, lot longer conversation about it. I don't remember exactly what she said, but I remember this light bulb coming on. And I realized that no one knows me better than my mom. No one in the world knows me better than her. No one wants what's best for me more than her. And in fact, it, it just kind of hit me that she spent her entire last 18 years devoting herself to what was best for me. She had made sacrifices. She had endured hardship. And it wasn't for her. It was, it was for me. And it, again, it was this light bulb that came on. And I just, I felt humbled by it. And it was an important moment because I realized, I think she knows better for me than I do right now. And I don't have to do what she says, but why would I not? Why would I not listen to the person who knows me best, who is so devoted to my good, who has been for me for my entire life? Why would I not trust her in this? And this is the kind of trust that Jesus is asking for. And there's a light bulb moment for all of us when we realize that following Jesus is not just obedience. It's not just doing what he says because the Bible says so. It's not following just because that's what good Christians do. It's realizing who Jesus is, that he has been around forever, that he created everything, and he has been for me since the beginning of time. And so when he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that means something. And he can say that in a way that nothing else, no one else can say. And ultimately, whether we choose to acknowledge that, whether we choose genuine worship and obedience, ultimately is, is the biggest decision we'll ever make in our life. This is the point that John is leading us to here in chapter 1. Uh, a few verses later in verse 9, leading right up to verse 14, he says this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. This is a question that John lays before us as we consider who Jesus is. As we consider that he is the true light coming into the world to lead us, to teach us, to guide us. He asks this question, will you receive him or will you reject him? Will you trust him? Will you believe in his name? 
Or will you listen to some other voice? You know, I think one of the things that we all genuinely want this time of year, one of the things that we really want to do well is to worship well. We want to give God the glory during Christmas. And the challenge of real worship, we know this, it's not just to sing songs. It's not just to say nice things about Jesus. It's not just to set up a nativity scene or do a cute social media post about Jesus being the reason for the season. Real worship is something deeper. And John invites us to real worship here, and it's simply to acknowledge who Jesus is and all that that entails. To reflect on how amazing it is that the Word of God came into our world. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the creator and sustainer. Jesus is the only true light. And to worship is simply to respond like we believe those things are true. Like we really believe. So as we sing together this morning, uh, let's begin to shift our focus this season towards real worship. Let's consider not just what we're going to do for this next month, but what we're going to believe about this word. Let's turn our hearts and minds to this king, to this Jesus, to this word, to this eternal son of God who is worthy of our praise and devotion. Would you pray with me?